Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Anna Samalova's philosophy is that an artist is a cultural worker first and foremost. By utilizing tools and strategies related to digital media and commercial photography, Her work explores notions of environmentalism, consumerism, and the picturesque. She's actively opening up conversations about climate anxiety and the future of humanity, as well as questioning the pictured world we occupy. Her practice is one that is rooted in collaboration, understanding that nothing is built in isolation. Another illusion that I think needs to be dismantled is the the singularity behind an artist's career. There's no such thing as a solo artist, right? There's a whole there's a whole team there. I'm Jen Fletcher and this is The Messy Truth, Conversations on Photography. Anna is a Russian-American artist who moves between observational photography, studio practice and installation. Her ongoing project Flood Zone has been exhibited around the world and manifested as a book in 2019. It was recently shortlisted for the Dorschbos Photography Foundation Prize. In her new book, Florida's, we see her work in conversation with Walker Evans. Anna lives and works in Miami. I grew up in, um, in Russia. I feel like with the work, uh, Landscape Sublime, I probably have absorbed the best of it. Uh, Russian avant-garde was the inspiration uh, Alexander Exter, Natalia Goncharova, going to museums. So that aesthetic uh, and approach and the philosophy about an artist uh, being a cultural worker first, you know, and, and formal elements of art are secondary to the function, uh, I think is in, in my DNA as, a, as an artist. Yeah, so, so that, was my, um, that was my beginning. And uh, early on, I enrolled in environmental design program at the Russian State University for, for the Humanities in Moscow. So that was 2001. And uh, to um, document my physical constructions of various proposed sites for my environmental design program, I had to pick up a um, camera. So I, I learned photography as this um, sort of applied uh, utilitarian tool. That's so interesting, thinking about photography in the context of that kind of tool. I guess I'm so fascinated by your practice on a number of levels, and one of them being that the sense of continuum within your work is is ever more present than I find with a lot of artists you know there's this real sense of building and transforming and you've kind of created a grammar within your practice which is 
very unique to the way you see and interact with the world. And and as you mentioned then, Landscape Sublime is where things officially began, which is this incredible, captivating series of kind of sculpted landscapes born from user-shared image archives. I'd love to hear a little bit about your initial intentions with that project and how it unraveled. Um, thank you. And thank you for seeing the continuity. It's not the only opinion on the work. And I often get questions how did you jump from one thing to the other so radically? And, uh, um, you know, the project became somewhat known, the Landscape Sublime project, I mean, and it's all studio-based sets that I construct out of user-shared images that I find online in um, copyright-free archives. I download them, I print them out, and I uh, reconstitute those somewhat cubist environments and then I rephotograph them and so the final um, object I guess is still this flat print so it goes from this sort of ephemeral online presence into physical world as a two-dimensional print then it becomes a three-dimensional set very much inspired by Alexandra Exter her theater proposals and then I rephotograph them and print them out and the idea, you know, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a gestural metaphor for constructed worlds and worlds constructed of images and our perception of this world based on the images um, that we see. And of course, now it's a, it's a difficult time for me to talk. But um, in retrospect, I realized that a lot of it, um, you know, in this initial impetus for the work came out of this acute awareness of um, the world that's represented through images and propaganda images um, being a part of it. Social media is a, is a different world. You know, the images I find um, I found initially were on a popular sort of amateur photographers and semi-pros and some institutions even that used to be uh, the go-to before, um, you know, um, smartphones became popular um uh, th there's a different kind of images but nonetheless it was a reflection on certain places that i could easily um, imagine in my mind based on images that i've seen them alone and never from this first-hand experience so the metaphor is for this kind of construct in our collective memory of places and cultures that we might have not experienced firsthand and so this sort of questioning of um, of the pictured world. I love this work so much. And I, I think there's so much baked into it that continues to shift and evolve. And I love the fact that it was born out of Flickr in some ways or kind of references Flickr, because I feel like so many of us kind of began in our teens, um, you know, having a relationship with Flickr. It, it's surprising how often it comes up in, in people's um, photographic history. But I guess, I mean, there's loads of things I want to jump into. One being, for me, I think I've seen a video of you making some of the work and it, and it's so physical, like you're constantly testing and experimenting with these assemblages. I wondered if you could talk about the physicality of your practice then and, and how it felt to be in that moment. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. It comes from, I think, from several inclinations. Uh, on the one hand, on the formal um, side of things, I prefer not to pre-design these compositions. So um, 
I really just build them as a set um, from empty, you know, from blank canvas, essentially, of that um, initial white backdrop. Actually, in most of them, it's not white. There's this gridded plastic. And the backstory of that is um, my first artist residency was in Illinois. I was um, given a space uh, by the window, and it was a huge window that had to be protected from tornadoes. So <laughs> the plastic you see in the background is actually um, hurricane slash tornado protection on a window and it was done wow. with daylight. All the sets were done with daylight, but I thought it was um, it was a, an important inclusion. And then prints are made to scale of that. So the scale of that grid remains consistent. And then I, I kept uh, bringing that, that backdrop with me everywhere. So since 2013, I've had it. It's absolutely joyful. Um, well, you know, I guess there's more than joy in that. Um, there is a bit of an act of um, of destruction, perhaps, <laughs> with the prints, mm -hmm. you know, being folded, and then um, remember cut with kitchen knife. There's a bit of of that, of course, um, which reflects the tumultuous world, um, you know, and and Dada lived through a period no less um, dramatic than ours. So I think just the act of collaging, um, assembly and disassembly and cutting. Uh, is uh, is perhaps reflective of um, chaos as well, and then trying to make sense out of that chaos by constructing a more cohesive composition. And I do that by just adding those elements to the set, um, no sketch. I try to keep them playful. Uh, so it's it's both. And uh, there's quite a bit of movement involved. So with every element, I have to come up to the set and then move things which then results in now uh, the separate branch of this project, which is time-based. Uh, and these are time-lapse videos of, uh, of the process that are now their independent um, own pieces, I guess. And uh, I just uploaded them as NFTs. So there's, there's that in the project. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier that you, you know, you collate all these different open license images and and it made me think in some ways you have these kind of silent collaborators both the work that you're drawing from and and reimagining but also I feel like with this project the work is particularly activated by leaning on the viewers kind of collective imagination and how we have been programmed culturally to have these visualizations of what what these different elements in the landscape are described as and mean to us even if we haven't been there like you said and I was just curious if you think about the work in a collaborative context oh yeah absolutely even though authorship is sort of the least interesting aspect of it for me because they are not appropriations you know I, I didn't really want to investigate the, the whole idea of authorship I was mainly positively uh, intrigued by this democratic potential of photography and also, you know, this this uh, overabundance of images coming out of just the natural accumulation of the same kinds of depictions. Mm. So there's this pattern and typology that I was interested in um, when I began. And now it evolved in, in all kinds of other um, subjects beyond straight up landscape. So the there are several works from 2020 
where I would gather images of uh, various sort of ob observers, I guess, records of um, climate phenomena, uh, climate change consequences. You know, there are all these wildfires going out, um, out west in the States, um, San Francisco and in Australia. I focused on the on the United States, um, and then there were records of floods in New York City, and the news came out that um, the city is now qualifying for a subtropical zone. So a collage for me was also a means to process this anxiety. And mm. I think the very dense compositions of the, the later uh, stages of this project are telling of the the perhaps uh, less um, less peaceful, I guess, approach and the density and sort of the elimination of negative space and the I just really wanted to show the multiplicity of those testimonies, it's essentially citizen journalism um, that I was assembling together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean you're weaving in so many different ideas and and methodologies within this project, which I think is why it's so generative and there are so many different ways in it's interesting to hear you talk about your own personal anxiety around you know everything going on with climate because I was curious about that because as as we kind of go on to talk about other projects you've been working on that is you know the the looming and ever-present sense of climate change and its impact on our lives is is a main thread through the work and I was curious as what it's been like for you over the last decade of thinking about that and feeling that yourself as as an artist and processing that and what that means for you. Yeah, absolutely. And I realized, you know, the overarching theme is climate anxiety more than anything. Landscape Sublime, there were, before this project, um, my thesis work uh, was focused on um, industrial agriculture in Midwest where I was studying. But instead of, while I have produced a short documentary about it, I thought it felt um, too didactic and frankly not effective for me. Um, they're better documentary filmmakers. So I went um, a different way and, and concentrated on early propaganda images that sort of convinced the public that industrial agriculture was the way to go and um, nothing bad would come out of, of that. Um, kind of practice and the whole shift that happened in just the last few decades towards um, industrialized agriculture and factory farms um, and elimination of small family farms. So I focused on posters and adver advertisements of different affiliated companies and I interpreted them in a series of sort of semi-abstract collages. So Landscapes of Line began after, began after um, and then with the recent images, like I mentioned, these were um, documentations of wildfires and this orange skies in San Francisco in 2020, um, something that kept coming up on my phone. And so in this flood of images, I attempted to sort of make sense, but at the same time to show just the amount, just the number of those records. Very recently, I have also started photographing various full-size sort of like light-scale um, renderings of new developments throughout Miami and other cities and uh, that sort of branch of, of the project is called New Developments 
and again, it's like twice removed from reality um, rendering, yet uh, it seems like the world is heading towards that kind of image, um, this sort of meta of mm. itself. And then with the flood zone, so the, the most direct approach, it, it also began from the interest in, uh, in the existing images throughout the city where I live in Miami. I'm excited to talk about Flood Zone. Uh, so that you spent three years photographing Miami, uh, Florida, and three other states exploring these kind of subtler signs of climate change and what awaits people who live along the shorelines in the states. And and the images are so disarming; they're mesmerizing, actually. And it's really interesting to me the ways in which they communicate and talk about and tap into our kind of shared psychological state and and how you know the the impending reality of climate anxiety as you said impacts us all I guess I'd love to hear about your intentions with this work and and what the process was like moving from kind of you know being in a space with landscape sublime where you were fully in control of the process to some degree to more hunting out kind of these ready-made images on the streets of Miami yeah, so with, with Landscape Sublime, which I began in 2013, um, the sublime part comes from, you know, it's a aesthetic category. Um, uh, German philosophers, we have uh, Kant, right? Schopenhauer, who used images, uh, who used examples from nature to illustrate the, the categories, such as the, you know, picturesque, the beautiful, and the sublime. Um, so sublime is something that is um, so grand, it can overwhelm an individual. And then moving to Miami in 2016, I noticed not only the proliferation of the sort of idealized images of Miami all throughout the city, but also, um, like you said, the, the strange signs of, um, of water um, where it shouldn't be, right? Mm. So um, salt water, I didn't know it was salt water initially, coming out from the drains several times a year and not necessarily um, rain related, uh, which I learned later is the phenomenon called sunny day flooding. It's related to tides. And this is where you have to go hide your car, <laughs> park it elsewhere. Um, there's a map of locations now um, where sunny say, a sunny day flooding occurs. And so this is a learning process, but Initially, I was drawn to, again, images within the city. So there's a, there's a whole thread throughout the project and, and my book of uh, photographs of billboards uh, that are all over, all over the city. And, uh, you know, my curiosity about those images convincing that this is, this is a worthy place for real estate investment, for tourism, but then the whole history of Florida is... Um, Intertwine. It's really dependent on those images, those idealized fantasy uh, renderings of Florida. I, I, I think I was uh, I found on eBay one of the early postcards saying uh, Florida, a perfectly something like that, perfectly fine, safe state. Um, occasional summer storms, and of course, hurricanes have been here historically. Mm. It's just now the effects uh, um, are exacerbated by rising sea levels. Yeah, so it began through my this permanent interest 
in images within this urban landscape. And then just uh, quiet observations, walking the street, which was new practice for me entirely. I've not really done observational photography before. There's a lot of walking. <laughs> I bet. How did you sustain yourself with all that walking and and also that that act of surrendering to chance to some degree? Because I guess, you know, you never knew if you were going to find something. Yeah. With the Landscapes of Lion project, this was perhaps a means to understand the world um, from from those um, from those images perspective. And then with the flood zone, I realized I need to get out of the studio and process this relocation through you know, there's, there's, there's a bit of a detachment still from my lens, but also um, in the most direct and immediate and intimate way, uh, which can only be accomplished by, by walking these streets. And it's, it's very hot. <laughs> so that's yeah. most of my images are taken in the morning. There's another project called Breakfasts, and this is where I would, and they, they coincide where I would wake up and actually I could have breakfast now because I, I left my teaching um, job. And so my mornings were suddenly my own and not in the classroom. So I could have my, my coffee and the simple breakfast uh, with photo books. And I would get inspired mm. uh, and go out and just um, just photograph. <laughs> Maybe this is me being too romantic, but I imagine it must have been a really interesting way to get to know the city as, as a new person when you first arrived. Yes, and it's a very, for lack of a better word, exotic place for me. You know, I come from a very different climate than in the States. I lived in the Midwest, in the Chicago area, and then in Northeast, um, in Western Massachusetts, upstate New York. So this was very new and very strange. And it's, of course, um, you know, primary industry is tourism, real estate. So this was a, yeah, a way to understand the place without any preconceived agenda on what I wanted to photograph. Um, so I just let myself explore and it was speculative. I knew I had to keep working on something, but at that point I felt like the Sublime project was becoming too comfortable for me. And so I needed that push and the photo books provided inspiration. And the city itself provided a fascinating subject. And then I met other artists. I think you had Rose here on the podcast, Rosemary yes. Cromwell. Yeah. <laughs> She's a friend and, and we actually shared a studio here. Um, and she comes from a very different approach in photography. So um, it, was, it was great to meet her and, and try it out. This was an experiment. Yeah, I think what I find so fascinating about the work is how it kind of builds on some of your visual strategies as an artist, thinking about playing with colour and light and form and, and sculptural elements and images within images. But you're also kind of foregrounding this kind of emotional connection with the viewer. And you, unlike a lot of dialogue around climate change, climate anxiety, you resist doom and gloom in the way that it's kind of perpetuated. And, and, and you resist the trauma of the depiction of climate change and instead kind of drawing people in through kind of atmosphere and curiosity. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that decision because it's very distinct and, and quite vital to your practice. Yeah, oh, that's, a, that's a good one. Um, I knew even about a month or two into it when, when some initial ideas were already um, 
shaping in my mind. And then with some further research, you know, some books that I picked up, um, just to familiarize myself with the, the situation, you know, the environmental situation here. My work has always been concerned with the notion of place and our perception of places through images and, of course, environmentally concerned. But I wanted to steer clear of this kind of didactic narrative. And plus, I don't come into photography from reportage. You know, so I'm, I'm kind of resistant as a viewer and as a photographer to drama and dramatization which I find um, exploitative of the audience. And with the very sensitive subject that is already becoming a bit of a, you know, a bit of a um, cliche. Mm. Um, we can picture the kind of climate change photography that is available, right? And easily accessible, which has become a, a trope. And of course, with the Landscape Sublime project, I'm addressing precisely that among other things so I wanted to find my own language and um, to show this firsthand you know insider's perspective the first exhibition I saw when I moved to Miami was actually Bernice Abbott route one and uh, yeah it it inspired me to um, to pursue it in in this way and then eventually I think the motifs evolved um, and you can see the recurrence of some of them throughout the project and the book. And it's really, you know, it's really observational photography is the art of selection. I photograph a lot. I don't carry a tripod. It's a simple um, camera. It's not large format or anything, even though they're cropped to four by five ratio. I, I just prefer it on the aesthetic level. But it's a, it's very low tech. And um, the focus is really the subject. And the um, tools are minimal. <laughs> so I think that probably defines the, the formal characteristics of the project. And tell me a little bit about that editing process, because I imagine that must be where you get those interesting surprises and the unexpected could happen when you start to see the conversations emerge between the images. Oh, yeah. Um, that's another part of it. So this is where the pairing, the pairings of images were laid out later. Initially, I think in singular images, I'm mainly sort of exhibitions and, and wall. I, I think I think of wall first. I think mm -hmm. in prints because I'm a printmaker. And I think in certain scale, um, there's a specific size to uh, most of my images and they're fairly large scale. So I think architecturally and um, I think in, in singular views and that's why I realized about a year into it that I will need an external editor um, because this is not the skill I have and I already <laughs> was plotting a possible book I even went to, to an artist residency and I brought a small printer with me determined to lay out the book and this was in 2017 um, and I spent three weeks there pinning out those tiny postcard size images on the wall every single day all day and um, just continuing to be disappointed with the layout <laughs> <laughs> and then I thought okay I can't do it all and so then I outsourced the, the layout of the, of the book to um, the brilliant editor David Campany who then did all the pairings it was collaborative 
but I also uh, trusted him with with the uh, you know the sequence after learning the hard way that I'm unable to do that. I can do it with other people's work, with my students when I used to teach, but with my own art, it's just a it's just a challenge that I didn't want to continue taking on. So the sequence was was made by uh, an external editor in the book. I mean, isn't it powerful though to admit where? collaboration can benefit your practice I feel like we're so obsessed with trying to do everything ourselves and and there's already a massive undertaking in in the conceptualizing and making of the work and and all the trust and energy that goes into putting ourselves through that process of making that it's it's in some ways quite liberating I think to um to you know to open the door when we may need support on stuff. And I, I was curious to ask about your relationship with David, because we'll talk about your new book in the minute, but you've collaborated with him several times and it seems to be a really generative relationship for both of you. Yeah. With the flood zone, it made my life so much easier. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then, like you said, it's, um, it's a creative act too. So um, for that reason, when I saw the results, I found them inspiring and, energizing and I wanted to keep going with this kind of collaborative approach and initially you know I'd like to think that with even with Landscape Sublime the decision to never sketch um, those compositions prior uh, is very conscious decision of course I wanted the images and this act of staging to lead me where the composition needs to be and basically you know sometimes it's three hours sometimes it's a day sometimes it's several days the only way for me to know when it's done is when it gets worse when it's starting to get worse <laughs> this is where I knew that I need to let it go and just leave it alone and the same with the flood zone it would have never happened had I had any kind of preliminary you know list or any sort of visuals in mind I knew what I did not want to do uh, I knew I didn't want to do some sort of like a helicopter reporter approach, even though there are a couple of aerial images because Florida is so flat and they mm. help to see that side of things. But I just let the place um, lead me and I'd let the, you know, I let the city itself dictate and sort of not really dictate, but more of a inspire the color palette, which is quite distinct there. And I just wanted to, remove myself I guess uh, and any kind of style from what I thought was more interesting which is the subject I just wanted to look sort of most authorless um, it could possibly be like the images made themselves and then the collaboration was so productive because then I let go of my control of that sequence and I, I did not want to make any kind of distinct particular narrative it can be interpreted in several ways um, there are no, you know, chapters in the book. It's so interesting to hear how much the unknowingness is a fuel in your practice. And what I've been so, you know, in preparing for our conversation, I've watched a lot of talks that you've done over the years. And, and it was so interesting to me how you have such specific intention with where, like, what you're trying to say and what you're trying to grapple with, but you don't know necessarily 
how you're going to get there. And you're very open, as you just said, to that process being guided by other forces. And you seem to walk that balance so well and with such confidence. I'm curious how you've cultivated that that confidence or whether it doesn't feel like confidence, it's just inherent to who you are and, and how you move through the world. But it's just so interesting to me because I think so many people grapple with surrender and, and knowing what parts of your practice you need to kind of let be and, and where to, to guide and, and mold and, and shape, if you like. I don't know if that made sense. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, speaking of guides um, and then letting go of any, yeah, any preconceived ideas and letting the place lead you. I don't know if inspire, I'm not, I don't particularly love the word inspire. I think there are other forces there. <laughs> I, I read, a, you know, and then photography is just one of many of my inspirations as, as much of a nerd as I am about photography. Rebecca Solnit, one of my favorite writers um, and her field guide to getting lost it was a great book that um, that came into my life right in the beginnings of this project. Uh, and then later, well, I picked up some nonfiction um, on the environmental subject. So those, book, those books um, helped with some locations, but as it tends to be, and because I'm not a photojournalist, you know, I don't, I'm not obliged to deliver specific um, locations, you know, to, to photograph specific locations. So it's sort of this preliminary map and they have lots of maps around Florida and there's Louisiana, other states that I photograph. Uh, but most of my images are taken in between those locations. And it's on those long walks where something more interesting than um, the initial flag on my map happens. And sometimes it's really minimal but more telling, you know, the metaphor is stronger than something that was literal that I could have photographed. So then I gravitate towards the metaphor and I abandoned the, um, you know, in your face mm. <laughs> testimony to, uh, yeah, to the phenomenon that I'm trying to address. You're listening to The Messy Truth, conversations on photography. You mentioned then imposter syndrome, and I'm, I guess I'm curious to ask you about it because, you know, it's something we all grapple with, but you have had such an amazing trajectory in the art world over the last few years in, in what is, you know, I don't like speaking generalizations, but quite a short period of time. You've achieved so much, you know, you've exhibited all over the world. You've got a number of incredible acclaimed books under your belt how how do you deal with those moments of imposter syndrome good question <laughs> it's just by working more I had this funny conversation at a small bookshop in New York a few months ago where I was um, trying to initiate a signing for the upcoming book you know and I said yeah I know you haven't heard of me but actually I've been around for a long time <laughs> it's been over a decade that I've been working on the subject no it's really like over 15 years that I've been working on it, I've stayed quiet and I'm sort of off the grid, you know, living in Miami, which is a bit of this um, frontier. Of course, we have this Miami Beach Art Basel happening once a year and the tents arrive and then they're here for a week and then they leave. 
Uh, and then what you're left with is your own small community, which has been supportive. And I met some great people here, but it is, you know, relative to like Los Angeles and New York City is a lot quieter. And I realized that this kind of peace and lack of distraction allowed for this very gentle pace that I needed for, for the flood zone project that kind of put me on this map, I suppose. Even though, you know, with the landscape sublime, there were exhibitions and there was a even this independent publication in 2016, and there has been even some press early on. I, I will never forget when I was standing at my teacher desk uh, at a community college where I was teaching in Illinois in a small town and then an email from the New Yorker arrived you know how did they find me so um, photography has this tendency to, to travel far and wide I think um, had I been a painter it would have been harder but because of the its reproducibility right and its effectiveness in whatever format print or digital format uh, photography took me this far and it's a it's a thrill of course I'm I'm in love with the medium you know and with its history the reality is that I work all the time and so the little conversation in the bookshop where it said yeah I'm, I'm sort of off the grid but you know I also I raised a kid and um, I've been around and it's a different timeline for women too um, I have an 11 year old son uh, so that took quite a bit of time yes that's a lot of work that often goes unseen. It's interesting to me, you mentioned then about, you were kind of talking around the conditions of what we need to make our practice. And, and you mentioned, you know, you needed, you needed that focused time in Miami to begin the work. And it's something that I was talking to Charlotte Cotton about a few episodes ago. And this idea that, that well, this tension between the places where we feel like we need to be for our practice to thrive, often big urban centers with a big art scene but actually they can be really they don't work for everybody essentially they can be really distracting and really disruptive when you need a certain stillness or or I don't know whatever quality you're looking for a, a certain aspect of space to be able to thrive in your mode of making and and it's so interesting and I don't think we talk about it that much I think there's especially young people they feel so much pressure to be in London or New York or LA and and there's so much more happening in these smaller communities there's so much to be said for figuring out the conditions you need to make the best work you can make rather than worry about kind of following yeah the the sort of guaranteed or I guess the presumed yes the um, presumed sure path yeah, yeah exactly. there's this, you know and in the states there's a certain trajectory too that can sort of assure your um, position <laughs> your placement maybe in this uh, art world it's not the best uh, association with the w word anymore is there it's, it's a bit it's a bit tainted mm. um, but yeah I had I had my own path one of my favorite writers uh, who contributed the, a short story for this newest book, Lauren Groff. I drove out to meet her in Central Florida and she's this best-selling author, you know, New York Times bestseller, uh, just brilliant, brilliant writer, um, fiction. Uh, I rarely read read fiction, but I was recommended your her book, Short Stories Florida. And so I... I was just completely fascinated by her language and her imagination 
that was a, a, a very um, inspiring is not the word again. You know, it, it underestimates the effect uh, literature has on me and especially Groff's fiction. So I drove out to meet her and we had a conversation and over coffee and she said, yeah, Florida, you know, it's good to be in resistance to the place you live in. You can't, an artist cannot be too comfortable. Mm. You, you can't, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, I, I came here. I did not have the uh, resources to enter like an Ivy League university. So I was in Midwest in a smaller university that provided me a full-time assistantship. And then I taught digital photography in exchange for my MFA. And then it was um, six years of teaching community college. Uh, what? No, three years of community college. And then another um, year teaching at a college, but undergraduate teaching. And then it was a, this long journey to where I'm, I'm finally doing this full-time what I've been wanting to do my entire life yeah but it took yeah. quite some time it took 15 years to arrive at this point yeah it is a journey that's exactly that's exactly it isn't it and this you know that's the big one of the big drivers of this entire podcast is that is bringing more transparency to the journey because I feel like you know we're all encouraged to make out that it happened overnight you know and everything came so easy and it's there's so much unseen blood sweat and tears that often you know enable somebody to get to where they are so thank you for sharing that I really appreciate it um oh thank you yeah I think it's really important you know and I I wish back then you know, as a student that uh, or as all students um be aware that this is not an overnight thing and it happens overnight for some people um you see very young names right and those like major biennials and so so forth but for the most part, it's it's just uh, it's all these hours that you put in, right? And yeah, all these friends absolutely. that you make along the way. And another illusion that I think needs to be um, dismantled is the the singularity behind an artist's career. There's no such thing as a solo artist, right? There's a whole there's a whole team there. Mm, an ecosystem absolutely absolutely and again network has this uh as a word uh i feel like it belongs more to business than to art but essentially that's what it is i mean it's your friends who put you in those early shows right it's your friends who write those texts you know my first book landscapes of wine book was published by a friend that i made when i was giving a talk and then um we're still very much in touch Right. So it's these long term collaborators um, that you accumulate over time. And it's this very much an ecosystem. Um, and it's not like this solo artist. Yes, my name is on this um, book, but there's also this whole paragraph of acknowledgments in the back. Yeah, it's interesting to think about the lineage of a career and all of those different connecting points that are sometimes, like you said, seemingly so every day, like meeting somebody at a talk that actually build into something that can transform and, and change your work and your practice in, in really exciting ways. Um, I don't want to, I, I want to make sure we talk about your new book because Florida's is is a really interesting project um that you've been working with again with David Campney and it sees your images in dialogue with Walker Evans which is really fascinating to see how you both kind of layer surface and and enable 
deeper truths to emerge about Florida and and this tension between its image versus its reality and you've paid homage to Evans before in some of your images and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what captivates you about his work. I think it's this um, the sense of authorlessness that I brought up prior. Mm-hmm. Um, his hyper focus on the subject and oh that's a personal that's personal taste but it's lack of photo sticks. I can't phrase it better. (laughs) It's void of um, all these um, dramatic photo tools. You know, you barely see some kind of extreme shallow depth of field or, you know, some whatever shadow play. I can't quite put a finger on all the shticks, but I think (laughs) you you can picture them, you know, and sometimes the work is all about form, and no content, and I'm content first kind of a photographer, um, and so uh, that was the initial appeal. Uh, the other thing is his very um, wide um, roster, right, and, and and just a huge grasp on the kinds of subjects, you know, that that his lens is aimed at from, you know, from portraits to urban landscape. Um, the one thing he's not done much of is probably natural landscape. Although interestingly in Florida, he actually attempted that, uh, was that mangrove coast book illustrations. So there are just some straight up landscapes there. Uh, so in terms of just the genres, it seems like he could do it all and not limit himself to just a a narrow list of subjects or, you know, something that really annoys me (laughs) these days with uh, the professionalization, I guess, in the arts is that this whole like branding, well, what kind of photographer, you know, what kind of artists are you? And of course, if you go from my, you know, it was just a, a, for the first impression between Landscape Sublime and say Florida's a flood zone, there might be nothing in common but it's it's all connected for me. So with him, he made paintings in Florida that few people know about, um, and they're included in the book. And then seeing the parallels between those paintings and his, you know, his usual black and white images, but also color images, Polaroids, um, I found fascinating. Yeah, I think for me, after, this may sound strange, but after living through a pandemic, there's something even more resonant about the passing of time and what changes and what remains, which was a a really big theme for me in this book, which kind of plays out beautifully. And I wondered if you discovered anything new about yourself while working on this project and just, yeah, having that dialogue with with another photographer from another era. Something about myself. I, I did. Well, it affirmed my love for photography and for adventure. <laughs> There's many road trips in this book. Um, and at different times, I had different Evans's biographies with me on those road trips. I have my bicycle attached, you know, so I dispatch in a place. And then uh, I ride around on my bicycle. And then I read a book after daylight hours and with um, my feet in pain. And then there was Svetlana Alper's great book, uh, again, Walker Evans's biography that inspired another trip. 
And then what did I realize about myself? That um, I love places, new places, uh, familiar places, um, and that I could photograph any place. <laughs> I became a lot more <laughs> confident throughout the four years of uh, photographing for this project. That's amazing. Okay, so I've got a couple of quick fire questions for you. First quick fire question, how do you deal with self-doubt? Robert Rauschenberg, one of my favorite artists ever, said just just work. You know, it's in the process. You don't wait for inspiration. So what is doubt? You know, doubting whether you can do it, doubting whether you, you just show up and you work. Um, and so that's my, again, goes back to my philosophy that I adopted from one of those um you know, revolutionary artists back back in Russia, the avant-garde people who said, you're a cultural worker, just uh, just work. There's no doubt. There's when you have to show up and you just believe, you just trust the process. I love that. That's very powerful. How did success change your work? Hmm. <laughs> well, that's funny. I don't, you know, define success. Um, when I'm happy with my work, I'm happy with my work. And I don't put out things that I'm not happy with. I did become more confident. You know, I feel like I love commissions, actually. (laughs) When somebody brings up a place and then I know I can approach it in my way and I'll find things, again, by letting go of any preconceived idea. Um, So I I trust in my process now. And I think, well, success, whatever that is, is not instruction. I wish I could spend more time actually making work because success in terms of, you know, exhibitions and publications, um, it comes with increased time spent on the administration of all of that. Um, So I'm trying to find some balance with that. And I think I'm going to have to have like an automated reply on my emails. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just shooting today, you know, because in this whole like digital world of when do you reply to email you have to reply within 24 hours or 48 hours and then I feel like most of my emails are just beginning with apology now (laughs) to (laughs) move away from that from that pattern I'm really fascinated to ask you this next one but what does art enable you to do that perhaps a different discipline wouldn't have oh interesting well it's it's the best (laughs) there's nothing better than this and I've always wanted to do that since I have you know since I remember myself um it just took a long time to actually be able to do this full-time and have it sustainable you know when I have these five galleries that support me and institutions and the publisher um so all of that really helps but it took this entire time to build that and so I, I see no alternative. That's what I've always wanted to do. And you've had such a vibrant career so far. Has there been anything you've had to unlearn along the way? Oh, yes, actually. I did. Um, I had to unlearn to just sit around and wait for things to come on their own. And uh, it's a, again, it's a balance now. Things do come on their own. I can't complain at all. Um, but I'm also actively seeking collaboration. And I've learned that from uh, other, you know, from other freelancers from all kinds of fields, um, you know, and photojournalists who um, make pitches. So I, I don't make pitches. I'm not a photojournalist. Um, but there are things that I've learned from that. It's just, a, it's a different approach. 
So I've learned not to just be apathetic. And then I, I directed all the energy that I was spending on uh, teaching and preparation and grading onto my own practice. And so I realized that, you know, practice is separate from my self, even you know, my, my ego, whatever it is. Um, it's, it needs to be nurtured and it needs to be advanced. Um, yeah. So I took on a more active approach. And do you think photographs still have the power to shift thinking or consciousness? Oh, absolutely. I wouldn't be doing it otherwise. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's not, it's not uh, just art, right? <laughs> this is the most accessible yeah. medium. It, it is the most accessible medium. It's the most um, realistic looking, at least, right? Even documentary style photography that I do. And it can travel so far. I mean, it's incredible to see um, even the Flood Zone project covered in so many languages I lost count and the resonance it had so that that really keeps me going so to finish up I wanted to ask you the question that I ask everybody at the end of the show what matters more to you the process of making the work or the final image the final image actually I'm not going to give up on the process but oftentimes a very difficult image to achieve right that took lots of effort whatever you know destination location scouting in the end could be disappointing and then it's not worth including and it happened to me way too many times and there were also too many instances of me going out and then getting three images in one hour two hours that would end up in a book or a show so it's just again I trust the process, but in the end, it's the the final result that matters. Well, thanks so much, Anna. It's been so great to talk to you. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. And I'm I'm really thrilled about the, the upcoming show in London. Thanks for listening to The Messy Truth. You can find more information about today's guests in the show notes. Theme music is changed by Judd Greenstein from the album Awake. And design is by Ruby White. You can follow updates on the podcast on my Instagram at Jem Fletcher or subscribe to my newsletter at jemfletcher.com. Feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts.